0: You are listening to The Psych Experience. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us again for another episode of The Psych Experience. I'd like to share the story of a friend who went to medical school with me and uh, the story of his uh, short exposure to antidepressants. And he was okay with it, so we're good. Basically, he was going through some difficulties in his marriage and decided to separate. And he did so. Now, if you have gone through a separation or divorce, you know how tough it can be. During that time, he uh, started to take fluoxetine, which, according to his description, made him feel numb or, as we described during our conversation, reduced the amplitude of of his emotions, because we're both nerds. He also endorsed feeling less consequential about decisions. Then, he started to have some sexual side effects, and because of that, he was switched to sertraline which, you know, he believes led to an exacerbation of emotional reactions, made him, you know, experience things more intensely for a second, and um, also caused anorgasmia. During that time, he also fell in love again, and was even considering remarrying. Finally, he switched to albutrin with a full resolution of his sexual side effects. But then, when he started to take albutrin, he felt grounded on his own words, or as a best translation, because conversation was in Portuguese. And again he felt some degree of numbing of his emotional intensity. And then he says that he believes well butrim made him see things more clearly. And all of a sudden, all the reasons he had to get out of his marriage, like the unsatisfaction, discontents, seemed irrelevant And he's considering now to try to just work on his marriage and fix things up, even though he's in love with his girlfriend. So having that as a background, here are a few questions that I've been working uh, for a while and looking for answers, and I was wondering if we can make something out of sharing them. So the first question will be like very broad. Is it ethical to prescribe antidepressants the way we do? And I'll explain the complexity of this question, as it seems to require a more complex answer than just yes or no. So first, we look back to DSM. And until DSM three in the psychopharm era, era, depression was pretty much understood as a time-limited reaction to life events. With the advent of medications, though, it was just too tempting to invent a claim, to make up a claim, that depression was caused by something isolated in some isolated event inside your brain for which the medications will be a cure. And you know the the thing that came up was like too little serotonin. Now the problem with is that is in addition to not making any sense as we have discussed in previous episodes that claim had 40 years and billions of dollars in research to prove itself but failed. All that money and all that time failed to find any biological marker for depression. Not only the serotonin thing was debunked, nothing else was found to replace it. So all of that taken into account, we know that we're not treating any brain deficiencies when we prescribe a medication. Now second, if we consider that low mood is a normal reaction to life events, normal, normally in many senses, normal in the sense that most people would have the same or similar experience, normal in the sense that it's a reaction of a perfectly fine functioning brain, normal in the sense of natural and even normal in the sense of expected. By all means of observation, empirical included, that seems to be the truth. As a consequence, by prescribing a medication, we are trying to induce a malfunction, meaning we are trying to alter the normal functioning of the brain in hopes for a given result. That is exactly what other fields of medicine do, not a biggie. We can use the treatment of pain for example. You, can, uh, you have an injury, your body behaves as, n- as a normal body would and you feel pain. Then you alter that normal functioning by taking an anti-inflammatory medication. However, that medication is actually acting in the no physiology of the pain. There are biomarkers for inflammation and that medication is changing that A better comparison maybe would be with opioids. They act on somewhere else. No connection to the lesion or known biomarkers, which I'm talking about the prostaglandins. It just dopes you up to make the pain less bothersome, induces a malfunction in the brain, as opposed to inducing a malfunction in the target of the pain. And I don't need to talk about the consequences of doing so, but I'm also not questioning the utility of it from an acute treatment perspective. Third, still considering that low mood and anxiety, for that matter, anxiety as well, are reactions to life events. Granted that both things, low mood and anxiety, are at the same time trait and state. And I'll explain that. So feeling chronically low as a sort of a personality trait seems to be a real thing. Same with anxiety. Someone may be comparatively more anxious as a trait. In addition to that, we have the state. That is more time-limited and reactive to life events. So that being the case, and again, by all available evidence that does seem to be the case, it raises two main questions. One is about the temporality of those reactions. Low mood should, and it does in the majority of cases, improve spontaneously with the resolution of the problems that led to that same low mood. Oh, but doc, some problems don't have solution. Perfect. We'll, we'll get back to that in a few. On the same line, knowing low mood is a reaction to life events and assuming medications work to change that, are we really helping people to engage their problems and improve their lives by prescribing meds? Or medications are making people complacent. Let's assume for a second that the impact of antidepressants was massive. Let's say it could make you very happy despite your circumstances. We already know it does not do that. Actually, it seems that the most it does is some numbing, that is short-lived, but but maybe that has a, a use, but let's assume something different. For the sake of this exercise, let's assume that it's like falling in love, taking an the present, is like falling in love and being reciprocated. It makes the person feel as everything was perfect. Everything seems to be in the right place. Would be right to prescribe a medication like that to a person who's living an unlivable life. Let's picture Let's picture Mrs. Smith here. She has a husband who's controlling. She has no friends. She spends most of her time alone. She abandoned her dreams long ago. would be right to prescribe her something that would make her feel amazing despite that. Now, moving back to how well antidepressants work, they definitely don't make you feel like happy or joyful. When someone comes to you feeling down because of life circumstances and you offer an antidepressant, what are we telling this patient? What is the message that this eternal mad tweaking sends? My impression is the message is the cause of your problems is in your biology and I'm the responsible for fixing it. Or something like you're not responsible for the way you feel, which in both cases, we're selling a lie. Now we have covered how we can we can be easily fold into thinking that lives that are on the surface acceptable would actually hide multiple factors or limitations leading to low mood or related feelings. So so we covered that um, in previous episodes, but some lives may hide some of those factors may hide in a different level of analysis, but on a superficial level. Most of all, most of us, if, if not all of us, need some degree of novelty, some degree of sense of meaning and accomplishments. Now, I'll advise you to go back and listen to the refractory symptoms series for that matter. If you have no excitement, excitement will get you going. If you have too much excitement, then you start craving for peace, and peace will get you smiling. And then you grow tired of peace, just like you grow tired of a new car, of your new house, of a new job, and sometimes of a relationship. We call that hedonic adaptation and yes we are chronically unsatisfied it's a human trait satisfaction is always temporary so life is constant change not embracing change comes with a very high price but back to my point considering consider the following case so mrs smith shows up feeling depressed considering that her mood is a reaction to life events considering that it should fluctuate improve and considering that in that identifying the causes of that low mood is very therapeutic, we could have something like the following approach, something like this, like, first you don't buy into I'm depressed out of the blue. Make an effort to educate your patient about the importance of finding what's missing, what's hurting. Do not buy into the endogenous hypothesis that low mood has the brain as its uh, cause or etiology. Second. If the patient is determined to have medications, consider how cultur- considering how culturally, like this has been the way to go about things, you could explain side effects and explain the physiological dependence. We know antidepressants don't have self-reinforcing properties like cocaine or opioids. Like meaning, like monkeys and mice, you know, locked in a cage will not press the lever compulsively. To have more and more antidepressants, like they would do with cocaine and opioids. However, the physiological dependence is a reality, and the rates of moderate to severe withdrawal symptoms from antidepressants. And not talk. I know we were all brainwashed to call it discontinuation symptom, but there's there's no reason not to call that withdrawal symptoms, and the the. The, the symptoms associated with withdrawal of antidepressants go from moderate to severe in 50% of the patients. Now, finally, if you successfully dissuaded the patient of taking medication and help her actually focus in or identify what is actually causing her to feel down or one of the factors, you already did more for her than any other provider did before. Any one of the providers that threw a new medication at every time she said she shed a tear. So once that is done, you can always say, well, let's revisit this conversation about medication next time I talk to you in a month. See what you can do. Why? Because it's a big decision. Avoiding or taking meds. Unfortunately, avoiding meds is a big decision because of how our system is built. And the whole concept of standard of care, (laughs) no matter how bad the standard is. and taking medication is also a big decision, right? But most likely, there will be a like, there's a likelihood that there will be variations in the patient's mood. Possibly the patient's going to get up and get better and, or get sad and get better again. And they're all independent of medications. And that should educate the patient and improve the patient's self-awareness about the factors leading to mood changes. Obviously, that a suicidal patient needs to be handled in other ways. Um, but what do you think it will happen? And I've been doing that for a long, long time. As you get to see your patient over and over with no pharmaceutical changes, you learn in the absolutely majority of cases that your patient's mood will improve, will get worse, then improve again, and all of that as a function of other factors, not our puny chemicals. How about low mood as a trait? Well... I may be wrong, but I think we refer to that as dysthymia and the response to medications is knowingly low. Now, if the problems are acute in the sense that they will present themselves and be fixed, I mean, the problems leading to low mood or anxiety will be fixed if they're acute. Personally, I would wait. Personally, me personally, I would not take an antidepressant. I would wait. Instead of taking a medication with sexual side effects, sedation, GI side effects, even problems that are just specific events, something that hurt my feelings, I know the feeling the feeling hurt, the feeling down is not going to stay with me forever. I know life is going to rescue me, new things are going to happen, small things, and will, you know, lift my mood again. So personally, I wouldn't take an antidepressant for those variations. Now, chronic problems could roughly again. Bear with me with the simplicity of my thoughts. Chronic problems could roughly be divided into unsolvable or solvable. If solvable, the argument about, uh, I just made about masking things up or numbing feelings so people stay put and subdued in their realities seems to be a valid one. For as long as a problem is solvable, chronic problems, you know, means the person has put up with the problem for a longer time and not invested in a solution. And, you know, owning those solutions is a very challenging thing. But still, those thoughts are still valid. If if someone is going through a solvable but chronic problem, because the the price to pay for solving problems is always high, it doesn't matter the size of the problem, but maybe chronic problems will have a higher price. Would I want to be an esthetic? anesthetized, and stay put? I don't have an answer for that. Maybe, depending on the problem. Maybe I wouldn't want to change careers. Maybe I wouldn't want to divorce. Maybe I would be happy being miserable, in a sense. Maybe. I don't know. I don't have an answer for the question. How about unsolvable problems? So let's say your patient's father is dementing, and he's the only caregiver. Or you went through experiences that took away your faith in humanity, in the world, in the future. I don't know. Shall we try drugs now? Now, now, maybe now, a careful look into side effects and the remote possibility of benefit is appropriate. Let's say antidepressants work, uh, and you can say to a man, you'll be able to tolerate your circumstances a bit better, but may come at a cost in the quality of your relationship with your girlfriend. Maybe. Maybe that's the way we should present this thing. How well antidepressants work for mood itself—it's not clear. Considering that there's a meta-analysis showing that the difference on Ham-D uh, scales between um, placebo groups and uh, treatment arms are only two points, two freaking points. There's a small percentage of people that improve a lot with antidepressants, but we also know that a lot of people improve by themselves. So the question of how good antidepressants work, or mood specifically, seems to be open. But they may have some numbing impact that could be desirable here and there. Even alcohol has a use in that regard. Even nicotine has a use in that regard. I have one last question or thought. Now, a frequent claim that I hear in some circles that I'm part of, that I belong to in the realm of psychiatry, is that socioeconomic difficulties are a frequent cause of low mood and anxiety. I find that claim awfully too simplistic. But why? Because, you know, we don't think of miserable countries as particularly depressed. And I'm talking about, for example, South American countries. Um, But but let's take that into account for a second. Let's uh, consider extreme poverty. Um, Would antidepressants be an option? Would they help people tolerate their poverty? I don't know. One could claim it is chronic. One could claim it is unchangeable. Also, one could claim we don't want anyone comfortable with poverty. Because poverty is a terrible thing. I'm not going to get into the merit of how to uh, address poverty itself in in this conversation. But assuming antidepressants worked wonders. Should we give that to people that are extremely poor so they, isn't that what alcohol does and other and crack maybe? I don't know. My point is, have we asked those questions? Have we considered those things before we offer drugs to, to patients? Have we incorporated those thoughts into our practice? And we ask those questions to the patients during the sessions and before we send meds to the pharmacy. Shouldn't the patients be included in that conversation, or in a similar conversation. Thank you for listening to the Psych Experience.